in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and they say if it's from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, dot, 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 they feared the people. For everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this day that you've made, and we are rejoicing, and we are glad in it. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray you just speak to this today through your word, Lord, and I pray that you'd help me to be faithful uh, to your word. I pray, God, that you would motivate us to do your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's really interesting in the Gospel of Mark, we have uh, the last six chapters are uh, devoted to the Passion Week. And there's a lot of real estate that's given to Mark in these chapters right here. I want to look at the Gospel of Mark and the Passion Week in a different way. Because when I've always heard this, I always see Jesus is on trial. Right? Jesus is executed. I submit to you that he's the judge. And in a spiritual sense, they are in trial. The religious leaders and so on. Let me, let me show you. On Sunday, Jesus comes in. He, they welcome the king. He's riding on a donkey. He's a prince of peace. He's on an animal of peace. He's not on a war horse. He goes there. And where does he go first? It says that in verse 11, it says... Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was very late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The king has arrived. The Messiah is here. And what do we see on Monday? Jesus is conducting a trial. Jesus is in the temple courts. He's throwing out the, the money changers. They're running the animals through the court. And Jesus is conducting trial. What do we see on Tuesday? He delivers a sentence. And you can see when he talks about the authority of Jesus given there, you'll see that he is when we, when we go through this. What do you see on Thursday of the week? He's establishing a new covenant. They're at the Lord's Supper. It's now a covenant of grace. And what do you see on Friday? You see the ratification of that covenant. You see in Genesis chapter 15 when you have... Abraham and God, and God makes promises. Usually when you have a covenant, there, there's a vow, there's an oath, and there's a covenant-cutting ceremony, and it's usually in the Old Testament, it was with blood. 
And Jesus ratifies that covenant on Friday with his life. And what do you see on Sunday? You see the resurrection. Jesus is on the cross on Friday and he says, it is finished. And I liked what Spurgeon talks about. He says, and it's like the resurrection is the exclamation point of the words to tell us die. It is finished. It is finished. And Spurgeon says, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. I hang my whole eternity, I hang it on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I see that the religious system is on trial. And now Jesus is saying, you don't have to relate to God to go to a temple and go through priests and go through sacrifices. Now you come directly to me. So what do we see here? My first main point is the religious leader's questions. The second is Jesus' laconic response. It's a simple answer, it's a simple answer to him, and it's right to the point, and they can't answer it. And now you see the silence is deafening. The big idea is that Jesus is, has all authority in heaven and on earth. And you see that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, at the Great Commission. The conflict. Sometimes it just comes out of nowhere. I'm amazed that there are over a hundred different synonyms in the English language for the word conflict. Jesus wasn't immune from it either. The Gospel of Mark records five temple conflicts and five stories in, in Galilee of earlier conflicts. The earlier ones centered around mostly on Jesus' authority. Jesus, this is a main thing about authority. Does Jesus have authority to heal on the Sabbath? Does he have authority to forgive sins? Eat with tax collectors when, uh, when the Pharisees, um, fast when the Pharisees do. Pick grain from, on the Sabbath. Heal a withered man on the Sabbath. Mark's gospel reveals that Jesus has authority. He has authority over the physical world, over the natural world, over the spiritual world. He's telling the stories already about Jesus' authority. He, he heals people. He raises people from the dead. He casts out demons. He calms the storm. He walks on water. Jesus has absolute authority. He's in control. Another key word in the gospel that we've talked about some already is that word authority comes up four times. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me in the Great Commission. After the Sermon on the Mount, the people were amazed at his teachings. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as the other teachers of the law. Jesus didn't quote other, other rabbis to support his own teaching as the Jewish teachers of the law did. Jesus spoke with a divine authority. Let me give you a little background about what's happening here. The conflict in today's passage, we've seen lots of conflict stories already that's happened that Mark's presented. But this is a big one right here. Luke's gospel says that Jesus was teaching and preaching the gospel in the temple courts. That's in Luke 20, verse 1. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders of Jerusalem challenged Jesus. These guys, these are the heavy hitters here. These are the spiritual big guys that are coming. It was, Jesus's, it was the Sanhedrin's responsibility to investigate anyone who claimed to be sent by God and disrupted the temple operations. 
They were in charge of the temple operations. And the day before, Jesus was in there. He threw over the the money changers' tables. He ran people out. He had the whip, remember, and all that. And remember, he said this. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's key. And then he says, but you. In the Greek, it's in the emphatic. But you have made it a den of robbers. He's delivering this sentence right now. Yes, he came into Jerusalem as king. He's conducting the trial. That was in the temple courts. And he's ready to deliver the sentence. The Sanhedrin exercised political and religious authority in Israel. The ruling council was made up of 71 men and was led by the acting high priest. And there are actually two high priests at that time. Because you have Caiaphas, who was the high priest, and you have Annas, who was his father-in-law. But remember, Annas was removed by the Romans. But in Jewish law, you were a priest for life. That's why Jesus was sent to Annas, right? So there, there are two high priests at that time, but the one that was recognized was Caiaphas. Their power of the Sanhedrin was enormous. They operated as mediators between Rome and the people of Israel. And they were super sensitive to anything that threatened their authority. Do you see what's going on here? Who's in charge? And Jesus was doing just that. They asked Jesus in public while he was teaching and preaching, it says, to state the nature of his authority and the name of the person whom he had received it. Let's talk about the temple operations. That's important to these seven verses here that we're going to discuss. Remember, Mark was writing to Gentiles. Whenever you have to re- explain like Jewish traditions or Jewish or Aramaic words, a Jew would understand that. Okay, But, Jesus, but Mark explains that throughout the gospel. And it must have been really encouraging to the Gentile readers to see Jesus' zeal in the temple court. Why is that? Because you have, it's Passover. People are coming to Jerusalem. That was one of the required three days you were supposed to be there during that temple, uh, or during that festival time. They were there. People from all over the world would come back to Jerusalem. Remember the diaspora when you had the Assyrian kings came down, they conquered, and the ten nations were spread out, right? But they still came all over to come to Jerusalem. You have the Holy of Holies. You have the Holy Place. You have different courts. You have the court of the women. You have the court of the men. You have the court of the Gentiles. Because remember what Jesus' premise was. He says, My house will be, we call the house of prayer, for all nations. Even the Gentiles were able to come. They couldn't go into the restricted areas, but they could come. And what was happening in the court of the Gentiles? That's where all the money changers were all set up. And Jesus said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. So Jesus quotes two verses in the Old Testament when clearing the temple and are important for understanding today's passage. Jesus quotes Isaiah 56.7 and Jeremiah 7.11. God says, These faithful foreigners, 
That's what the idea is. These people, I will bring to my holy mountain, this is what Isaiah says, and give them joy in my house of prayer. It says house of prayer once. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on the altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer. He says it not twice. For all nations. Twice in the verse, he calls it a house of prayer. God's design was that the house of Jerusalem, the temple, was a gathering spot for worshipers from all nations to pray. A place where prayers could rise like incense. From the hearts of faithful to the presence of the living God. Jesus also cites Jeremiah. But you have made it into a den of robbers. And you can bet that did not sit very well with the religious leaders. They did not like that description. So what was happening in the temple? Why were the money changers required at the temple in Jerusalem during Passover? They found that the sacred city of God was overflowing with thousands of pilgrims that were coming there for Passover from all parts of the world. Entering the temple, Jesus saw the money changers along with the merchants that were selling animals for sacrifice. Pilgrims carried coins from their hometowns and they might have images of Roman uh, emperors or Greek gods, which temple authorities considered idolatrous. Only the half shekel of the temple coin would be accepted there. This is... It doesn't say this in the Bible, but this is history, so I'm letting you know what's going on here. The high priest also received a percentage of the profit from the money changers and the merchants. So the removal from the temple precinct would have caused financial loss. Because the pilgrims were unfamiliar with Jerusalem, they were coming all over the world with their coin, the temple merchants sold sacrificial animals at a higher price than anyone else. They'd bring their animal maybe to be sacrificed, but if it had a defect, it wouldn't be accepted. But we've got one over here. Oh, it's at an elevated price, but you can use this too. It was a money-making business as well. But it threatened everything the Sanhedrin was doing there. The, the people that were, they were in charge of the temple, right? And the operations at the temple. When you have, when, remember what the difference is. When the people were taken into captivity in Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed, remember? And so what they did is they had houses of worship throughout the land. They called them synagogues. They were, there were Pharisees there. The Pharisees were usually out and about, not saying they weren't in Jerusalem. But the Sadducees are really in control of a lot of what was going on in the temple. And like I said, there were Pharisees as well, there as well. Okay, so... The high priest, he overlooked a little bit, you know, of this dishonesty that was going on, as long as he got his share. You see what's happening with this? The court of the Gentiles was like one of the several courts that was attached to Herod's temple. The outermost court was open to all people. That's the problem. It was a place of prayer for all nations, including the foreigners. This was the court of the Gentiles. This was the only court where non-Jews were allowed. And Jesus cleared the temple courts. And he did it twice, remember? He did it at the beginning in John chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry, and he did it, does it again at the end. So in the temple courts, the people were being taken advantage of, being cheated through exorbitant exchange rates, being compelled to buy temple-approved animals for sacrifice. 
on the pretext that the animals may have been brought were unworthy to sacrifice. And Jesus condemned these greedy transactions and he physically put a stop to the corruption. He should have been, it should have been a sanctuary for righteousness. And it was made a den of corruption by the religious leaders who were in charge of the temple operations. They were making money off God. God designed it for all people to approach God to worship and pray. It was a place to meet God. Jesus saw that his father's house was under the religious leaders, was a place of extortion, place of greed, place of oppression. So let me, let me recap so far what's going on with Passion Week. The king has entered Jerusalem. He goes and he enters and he goes to the temple court and he looks around. It's too late. He goes to Bethany because Jerusalem's crowded. There's a lot of pilgrims that are there. He goes to Bethany. He stays at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. He gets up the next day. He comes in. He goes and he turns over the money changers. And this is, there's a, con, a, 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 a trials be conducted right now. And he's, he's quoting these verses out of Isaiah and Jeremiah. He's stating his case. This is the trial. On Tuesday, remember, you have that, the withered tree, okay? That was talked about last week. And then uh, there's this idea in chapter 12 where Jesus keeps speaking about this parable of the tenants, which is all part of this, this idea of he's delivering or passing judgment. And so let's take a look at Mark 27 now that we have the background. Now the second day of Passion Week. And Jesus comes back to the temple courts where the disturbance with the money changers has taken place the day before. The religious leaders, they can't have this happen again. I mean, it's a disruption and it's right during Passover. The basis of the religious leaders' arguments was that Jesus was performing what appeared to be an official act if you possess no official status. Their question was a trap. If Jesus said his authority was from God, they would accuse him of blasphemy. If he said his authority was his own, they would dismiss him as a fanatic. He has no authority. They were trying to trap Jesus, and they were going to say, check. But Jesus has absolute authority. He knows their heart. And he says, checkmate. Let me show you exactly what he's saying here. The full force of the Sanhedrin had come to the temple. The Sanhedrin is made up of chief priests, of the teachers of the law, the scribes. They were the interpreters of the law. They were the scholars. They knew, they supposedly, in their own thinking, knew what it said, right? And you have the elders who were also part of that. As a lawyer, you would never ask a question you don't know the answer to. They wanted him to say that his authority is from God. He had already said that multiple times. The penalty from blasphemy was death. It wasn't really written down at the time, but 150 years later in the Mishnah, it was written down that way. But it was still practiced. 
They asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? They weren't asking Jesus to give a reply. This was more of a rhetorical question because they're saying, who gave you the authority? Because we have the authority here. You don't have any authority. That's our right. We're the judge. We have the authority to run the temple. It's our right. We're the scholars. We have all the power. It's in our corner. The question is more of, will Jesus wilt? It almost reminds me in a way of Martin Luther. So here you have Martin Luther. And he's making his stand, right? And you have the popes against him, the emperors against him. You got to have the whole brasses against him. You got other people against him. And here's Martin Luther. Here I stand. I could do no other. I mean, they, it was like they had everybody that you could think of in front of them. I mean, it's sort of like you bring a kid into the office and you have the superintendent there, the principal there, the vice principal there, the counselor there, and they're all before this kid and their parent. It's like everybody's there that makes decisions in this district. You may have the school board behind them. In the vernacular, it would be something like this. Here's what they're saying. Who do you think you are? What right do you have to do this stuff? Who gives you the right to upset the apple cart here? Who do you think you are, Jesus? And you have the, the Sanhedrin. That's the, that's the Jewish Supreme Court. They're walking there because of the day before. That's not going to happen again. You're not flipping over the tables. You're not running people out. So what's going to happen? So Mark, if you think about it, all of these conflict stories that have been going through the Gospel of Mark, it's now brought into really sharp focus right here at the temple. It's at this point in the Gospel story that we have Jesus' authority brought into clear and dramatic confrontation with the highest ranking religious leaders in Jerusalem. It is the authority of heaven versus the bureaucratic authority of the Jewish religious world. The question is, whose authority is going to prevail? So now you have Jesus' laconic response. I'll tell you what, I don't know. If, if I wanted to have like a discussion with Jesus, I'd just say, it's your will, not mine. <laughs> I mean, here they are, laconic. So it's like a really short you know, reply and it has, its impact is so meaningful. So Mark has already set the stage in the first chapter. At the time, remember, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus was coming up out of the water, remember, and he saw heaven open, torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came, You are my beloved Son, whom I love with you. And I am well pleased. So the question is, who are these people that are so full of pride, standing in front of Jesus? They ask this question. They know. They know what his answer should be. They've heard him say it before, that he is from heaven. He's doing these things from his Father in heaven. They knew that. They were just saying, we just want you to say it. Say it. Say it. Jesus sees right through all that. 
He does. Jesus says, I'll answer your question. You answer mine. Now, it may seem that Jesus is evading the answer. But his response was considered actually a very good practice in the way that they spoke in rabbinic discourse. The rabbis were considered actually very bright if they didn't really just simply answer the question. But they posed a different question that would force the conversation to go to a deeper level. So, I mean, they were receptive of that. They said, okay. But they didn't really expect Jesus to say anything anyways because they were the one that held the power of the temple, right? So the religious leaders would not have been upset if Jesus posed another question. They were probably just surprised, if anything. They thought that Jesus, they were trapping Jesus in front of the people, but he turned the tables on them, literally and spiritually, by answering them in a thoughtful and rabbinic way that surprised them even more. In Greek, this is the way it would be said. I will ask you one logos. I'll ask you one question, one word. One word. And in that one word, he exposed all their motives in one accurate stroke. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And that one word is John. John. John the Baptist. Was he from... Was his ministry, was he from heaven or was it from men? Answer me. Now, this is an interesting literary type of technique. It's called synecdoche. It's a figure of speech in which the little represents part of the whole. It's sort of like this in English. We do the same thing in English. Hey, I bought some wheels. Well, what did you buy? You bought a car, right? You didn't just buy the wheels, right? But it's something that's small, but it actually encompasses the whole thought. Or if you said, um, I would like to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. Does that mean you just want her hand? <laughs> no, you want every part of, I want her mind, her soul, I want her, I want, I want to be with her, I want her to be my wife, right? So that's the idea. So it's a figure of speech in which the little part represents the whole. It would be like this, like I just said, when Jesus talks about the baptism of John, He's literally saying the entire ministry of John. So you tell me about John, his baptism, the sermons, his counsel, his pronouncements, his claims. All of his ideas are all packaged up into that reference of John's baptism. The question that Jesus puts is this. I'll tell you what. You tell me your assessment of John and whether or not his ministry was from heaven. Was John speaking God's truth? Was he acting in God's approval or did he simply come from men? What is your view? Is it from heaven or is it from men? You're asking me about my authority. I'm asking you about John's authority. What do you think? Now think about that for a second. It's not stated here, but it was known that John the Baptist had publicly affirmed Jesus as the anointed one. John, Jesus was baptized by John. John testified to the events connected to Jesus' baptism about the dove coming from heaven. John put his stamp of approval on Jesus. 
John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John says, I am unworthy to tie his sandals. John says, I am the one who makes straight path for the way of the Lord. Here's what John said, that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Think about this. If they validated John, if they said John's ministry was from heaven, if the religious leaders affirmed that about John, they were stuck with the affirmation of Jesus, they would have to agree that Jesus was the Messiah because John said so. Jesus asked the question, and this is so good. We call this in teaching the power of the pause. You know, where you ask the question and you just pause. You get think time sometimes, they call it. Waits for a response. And listen, here's how Jesus says this. He goes, he says, Turn too many pages. He says, Jesus replied, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or was it from men? Tell me. And there must have been a long pause. I mean, they were, the wheels were turning in their head. There was, there must be silence was deafening. Both Jesus and the people were waiting for the scholarly and eloquent response. Here were the highest educated people, the people on the Jewish Supreme Court. They come to Jesus. They ask this question. Jesus asks them a question. And Jesus says, tell me. Could have hit a pin drop. I, it could have hit a pin drop. And they reason among themselves. If we say it's from heaven... He will say, why then didn't you believe him? Implied in that question is John affirmed me. John provided the way, he led the way for me. And I am right here in the temple. And anyways, didn't Jesus say, remember when he was 12 years old, didn't, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And he's the son, right? It's really interesting, the Greek word here, is dilagizomai, which is the word, we get the word in English, dialogue. And in John's gospel, it's always used, that word's always used in a negative sense. It literally means trying to wiggle out of the problem to dialogue. That's what they were trying to do. Like, we don't know how to answer. We can't answer yes, and we can't answer no. And we're the scholarly people around. They re reasoned, but if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was a prophet. And in fact, in Luke's account, the religious leader said, but if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. It is also written as an incomplete sentence. Notice the dot, dot, dot. There, as in, let's not go there. They're stuck in a challenging dilemma. This is the ultimate. If you want to think about between a rock and a hard place, here's their problem. They're in a political as well as a religious position. If they say the politically popular thing that John was right and that he preached the words for heaven, this would torpedo everything that makes life good for them. They would have just sabotaged their cozy relationship with Rome. 
Because Rome had killed John, right? They would just put a grenade under the lucrative business of running the temple. Everything was going to be lost if they endorsed John. But if they endorse John, they're endorsing Jesus because John endorsed Jesus. If they discounted the people's feelings towards John, they would lose respect from all the people to keep their position. And as Luke says, they might be stung. A yes or a no would absolutely ruin them. That's why it's a laconic response. You tell me. Tell me about John. But it exposed their motives. And they came back with a really insightful answer. Beats me. We don't know. We don't know. This comes from like the most sophisticated, educated, religious, political minds in Israel. But I don't know. But that was a wise response. And Jesus responds in a spirit of not casting his pearls before the swine. Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus is literally saying to them, I'm done. I'm done. You don't want to listen to the truth. I am the way and the truth and life, but you don't want to listen to it. Your hearts are hard. You don't care. I remember what Thomas Aquinas said. To the one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To the one who doesn't have faith, no explanation is possible. I'm done. You know, that's, I know um, there comes a point, and, I, and you're going to see this later on when we get to this conclusion, because I'm almost finished with this sermon. We're studying in the book of um, uh, Exodus right now, and we're looking at Moses. And there are five excuses that Moses gives God about not going back to Egypt. And God's accommodating on the first four. But the fifth one, it says God becomes angry. Because you know what his fifth excuse was? Send somebody else. I don't want to go. It's a spirit of rebellion. It's, a spirit. it's like, and God was angry at that. Me says, well, I can't talk. Okay, get your brother Aaron. You know, know, he's trying to accommodate on some of these things, but there's a point where these religious leaders, they don't want to hear. Their hearts are hard. But Jesus gives them an answer they don't like. And it will, we're not going to go into this, but here's something about your homework assignment. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus actually does respond. He responds in a parable, the parable of the vineyard. Every Jewish child would know the story of the vineyard. It's in Isaiah chapter 5. That's your homework assignment. And I can tell you right now, this is, remember I said Jesus is passing judgment? Because in verse 12, this is what the the religious leaders said, because this is the same time frame. It says, and when they looked through... And then, verse 12, 12, 12, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken that parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and they walked away. So in conclusion, so you can study Jesus' response. That's um, the sermon for next week. It's really fascinating, though. 
It's assuring to know that Jesus has promised us that he will always be with us. He is sovereign. He is the only king and Lord. Jesus is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. I can look to the Bible and trust in the reality and the authority in God's promises. I can be thankful that we have, we've been given the Holy Spirit as a helper. It made me think about this. I want to take this to the application phase right now. It seems we're all, we all face conflicts in life. There are always struggles in life. We have the confidence of knowing that Jesus says that he will always walk with us, right? We look to him. Sometimes we may not feel God's presence. But R.C. Sproul says this, God's promises are not based on our feelings. They're based on his integrity, his character, We were in Sunday school today. We were talking about one of the Psalms. It says, Lord, teach me. Teach me to rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. I I submit to you that these religious leaders did not have, they had a divided heart. And they did not fear God's name. They may have, on the outside, had Jesus right in front of them. They did not want to listen. So we need to be careful. Our hope is not found in rituals and traditions. But in the title of this message, it's found in the reality of who Jesus was. Jesus, I mean, the Son of God was standing right in front of them and they didn't recognize it. They, had, they knew the words from the, from the Torah. They knew what the Bible said. And there the reality of Christ was right before them and they did not recognize it. The religious leaders were like Pharaoh in the times of Moses. They had hardened hearts. Their ability to perceive and understand was dulled, and as it says in 1 Timothy, seared. Proverbs 4.12 says this, Guard your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. And what is the cause of this spiritual cancer, I call it? This, of a hardened heart. We talk about hardened arteries. I mean, what causes a hardened heart? It's sin. It's sin. It wants to creep into our lives. God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. What are the signs? The signs of a hardened heart are an inability to see, an inability to understand, an inability to hear, an inability to remember, to put into practice what God's purposes are for our life. Sin causes hearts to grow hard, especially when there's continual repent, uh, unrepentance, the sin of pride, the sin of rebellion against God, the sin of unbelief. How do we deal with this then? Because we see this in Pharaoh. We see this in the religious leaders. We don't want to have a hard heart. I think the first thing is that Psalm 139 says, you need to recognize there's a spiritual disease. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into everlasting. I think that's the one first thing you need to do. To guard yourself about having a hardened heart. Recognize it. Then I think in 1 Peter 5.8, 
I think you need to repent of those sins and submit to God. Resist the evil one. Stand firm in your faith. I think another thing that's really important is in Psalm 119. There's lots of references to the Bible, to the Word of God. I think you need to, we need to hide God's heart, Word in our heart. I think we need to do what it says in Galatians 5.16 when it talks about to walk by the Spirit. You'll not give desires you know, to that um, will lead you astray and to walk in the Spirit. I think we need to obey God. Obey God. I was thinking in Matthew 7.24, we talked about the parable of the vineyard. Well, also the period of where you build your house. You build your house on sand or you build your house on a rock. And Jesus Christ is that rock. And it says, he who hears these words of mine, and this last part is so important, he who hears these words of mine and just lets them fall to the ground, No. He who hears these words of mine and puts them in a book and then puts it on a shelf? No. He who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. That's the key. That's the key. If you love me, what does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I think we need to be careful that we don't quench the Holy Spirit. It's work in our lives in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. That we resist the Holy Spirit, says in Acts 7.51. That we grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4.30. We despise the Holy Spirit, it says in Hebrews 10.29. Nor lie to the Spirit, which says in Acts 5.3. We need to be sensitive to God. I pray like in Ezekiel, that we don't have a heart of stone, but he has given us a heart of flesh. A heart that's sensitive to him, that continually is seeking after him, that wants to know more of him, that not wants to be in his presence, to live and to do what he wants us to do. I like Jesus. They're just simple commands. If you really want him, he says, come, follow me. Where are you staying, Andrew said. He says, come and see, come and see. You know, in these last days, there's a lot, I mean, there was, there's, there's been pain and sorrow and hurt all throughout human history. But I just remember what Tozer says. He says, a scared world needs a fearless church. A scared world needs a fearless church. And you don't have to worry. I pray that when you're walking with Jesus, I mean, he even promises of Romans, he'll give us the words to say. And here these people were trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus exposes them, just like it talks about in Hebrews 4.12, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of both soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And they were judged, and they were found wanting. Oh, Lord. I pray that my eyes will always be on you. With you at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Psalm 68. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. There are people that come before us sometimes and we don't know how to answer. 
but we put all our trust in you. I know the safest place to be. If I'm on a boat where there's weather that's a storm, I want to be in the boat with you. When I'm walking down the road through Jericho and I see the whole crowd, I know the safest place. I want to be right with you. If I'm in a sheep and I'm in a field, I want to be next to you. I want to know you. Lord, we just pray that we would seek you with all our heart, especially in these trying times. Help us to love you more. Help us to read the Bible more, pray more, all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.